You're listening to House on Fire, a youth-focused podcast that is going to wake up every single listener to embrace urgency and agency in this climate crisis. The wheels of industry are turning. Methane has a lifetime of maybe a decade in the atmosphere. Net zero by 2050, blah, blah, blah. Build back better, blah, blah, blah. In the United States, scientists found that streets in poor areas we're up to 3 to 10 degrees Celsius hotter. Of course, we can still turn this around. It is entirely possible. I am Caroline Lewis, the co-host for season two of House on Fire. And with me today is my colleague, Katrina. Take it away. Welcome back to House on Fire, a youth-led climate podcast that aims to get you to wake up. One of the reasons I got into the climate movement was because all of the many solutions that are already present. All we need is action. And my hope is that this podcast will get you to do that. My name is Katrina Irwin. I'm a recent college graduate and an associate program manager at the Clio Institute. I am on a mission to give you all the youth perspective of the climate movement and bring on many other youth climate hosts to help guide me in this effort. Welcome to House on Fire. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to House on Fire. I'm your co-host, Katrina Irwin, and we have such an exciting episode for you today. We have Laura Steekhorse, who's a recent college graduate and at the age of 23 has received an $100,000 research grant award from the Musk Foundation. That's right, as an Elon Musk, to find out if carbon capturing in the ocean is possible and to research new and innovative ways for us to do this. Young people such as Laura around the world are finding ways to demand climate action, which begs the question, can young people meaningfully tackle the climate crisis? Here at House on Fire, we think so. Give the episode a listen. So during our episode with Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava, we invited her to the Miami International Climate Strike. Well, not only did the mayor attend the strike, but the strike itself was a huge success. And Caroline and I ended up meeting so many young climate trailblazers. And one of those trailblazers is actually sitting with us here in the studio. Laura Stekhorst, welcome to House on Fire. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And I am so glad that I ran into you guys at this strike because I'm thrilled to be here and tell you guys all about what I'm doing. Yeah, we're so happy to have you here. So a little bit of like background, like every time that we have someone in the studio, I'll always do like a little bit of like Googling research on them. Mm -hmm. And when I saw you at the strike, you looked really familiar to me. Do I look familiar to you at all? Like a little bit? It's okay a little I, bit, yeah. And when I Googled you, I found out that you and I went to the same high school. Oh, you went to Gables. <laughs> okay, Gables. awesome. Yeah. What year did you graduate? In 2017. Okay, I graduated in 2015. Gotcha, okay. Yeah. Were you and I B or? Yeah, okay. my sister's class of 2015. Maybe you have a sister that looks a lot like you. Yeah. That's what was yeah. happening. That's so funny. But like, what's really cool too is like, we're only two years apart mm-hmm. and we're both from Gables and we're both young people in the climate movement, which like that really shows that like, young people truly are the trailblazers and like there's so many like high schools here in Miami that I'm like finding out that some of like the most incredible people are just from the city of Miami like our new Supreme Court justice she's oh, from yeah, Miami too definitely like, Miami really is like where the movement is happening mm-hmm. so I'm just really happy to have you here in the studio but I would just love to hear more about like how you even found out about the climate strike mm-hmm. and kind of how you think youth leaders are here for the climate solutions 
So I found out about the strike through a friend, um, Ghislaine Fendel. She was um, at the strike and she's also a Miami native and involved in climate science. Yeah, we plan to have her on too. Oh, yes. fantastic. Yeah. Um, and we actually, we went to middle school together. We played volleyball and um, her younger sister, Claire, is a student at the University of Miami and she's also a climate uh, scientist. Um, and so I was speaking with Claire about my project. Um, and she's like, oh, you should totally talk to Ghislaine. She's um, back in Miami working on climate change um, education. And so, you know, we connected. She told me about the strike and I was like, oh, I'd love to go. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So as I mentioned before, like you really are a young person who's a leader for climate solutions. So what about young people do you think make us the leaders for the solutions to the climate crisis? The first thing is is all about education. And um, I think we're probably the first generation to grow up hearing about climate change even early on since elementary school. I mean, even as basic as reduce, reuse, recycle, that was the first messaging that our entire generation grew up with. Mm -hmm. um, and knowing that we are the generation that can't say, oh, it's going to be our kids' problems. Like, no, it's our problem we are going to face the consequences and we see it mm -hmm. playing out right now. And it's scary. Like, mm -hmm. I think, unfortunately, a lot of people are just motivated by fear and understanding that we can't push it any longer. We can't turn a blind eye because, you know, it's right in front of us and we're going to be affected directly by it. Mm -hmm. No, I completely agree with that. Like, something that I mentioned at the strike during my speech, like, what freaks me out about the climate crisis the most is that, we may be seeing the world for the last time as we're currently seeing it in terms of nature. I remember you saying that. It's just, I don't know, that just really freaks me out. And and funnily, not funny, but... Um, Sadly. <laughs> that resonates a lot with me because this past week I was with my dad hiking in Big Bend National Park mm -hmm. in southwest Texas. Oh, amazing. And it was absolutely beautiful, mm -hmm. but they're really being severely affected by drought in the Southwest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm very much aware of local issues, but it's the same story everywhere you go. This year is historically different from all previous years. We did a hike um, that crosses the Rio Grande and normally you would have to cross like a, a bridge to cross the river, but it was completely dried out and you could just walk through the riverbed to access the hike. And they were saying that that, you know, never before during this season was that, you know, possible. And the state's, uh, the state flower usually blooms during the season. And that was part of the reason why we wanted to go in, in the spring. And it was nowhere to be found yeah. because there just wasn't enough water and they weren't blooming. And so these things that, you know, maybe for older generations, you've seen through time passing seasons of, of change and they may say, oh, well, it's just a dry season. It'll be over in a few years. That happens. Like we have series of drought where it might last five years of drought and then it returns back to, you know, mm -hmm. rating patterns. Um, but being informed in climate science, you know, we may not go back to that mm -hmm. baseline. We may not go back to normal. It might not be a thing where, you know, you wait it out three years and then you have another good rainy season. Like this might continue. Mm -hmm. 
But that's why you're here. And we're here today to talk about the solutions. We definitely brought it to a very low note, but I'm going to bring us up back to a high note just to talk about why you're here and all of the incredible work that you're doing for the climate. So everyone and our listeners can understand why Caroline and I wanted to rush you into the studio. So Laura Steekhorse is actually a recent graduate from University of Miami. She graduated in 2021, and she is a proud Miami native and a proud Cavalier. Go Cavs! And one of the reasons we were so excited about her is she has a carbon capture initiative called Project Basico, which is funded by the Musk Foundation. That's right, as in Elon Musk. And Laura and her team will conduct valuable research to prove the safety of ocean alkalinity enhancement, or OAE, for carbon capture. As the largest carbon sink, the ocean truly is key to developing a multifunctional, safe, and scalable carbon removal solution. Welcome again, Laura. Thank you. And that's a great introduction. (laughs) Well, Laura, you know, when I saw you at the strike, I was standing on the steps and I could see you in the crowd. And without you saying a word, I saw a twinkle in your eye and I knew there was fire in that belly. (laughs) And I went up to you and I said, come up, take the microphone and tell us your story. And you did that. And I was just floored. Could you describe for us exactly what your project Basicle is hoping to accomplish? Absolutely. So we are a newly founded research lab out of the Rosenstiel as part of UM. And, uh, we are advancing, like you said, ocean alkalinity enhancement, Mm -hmm. which is a way of increasing the ocean's natural capacity for absorbing carbon while also counteracting ocean acidification. So when emissions are put out into the atmosphere, a portion of that naturally sinks into the ocean. A majority of it does, but it causes acidification, which is affecting corals and all sorts of shelled organisms in the ocean. So... uh, alkalinity, if you think Mm Alka-Seltzer, that buffers against stomach acid. Mm -hmm. So we're doing a similar thing in the ocean by introducing a mild base that will help capture carbon, store it permanently, and also fight acidification. And so before you can launch any carbon capture solution, Mm -hmm. you need to verify that it is safe and that it's effective. So that is the research that my group is doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are first starting with ecological studies, Mm -hmm. um, studying the effect of this uh, product on corals to make sure that it's safe. And we actually predict that they're going to be beneficial, not just safe, but help corals rebuild their skeletons Mm -hmm. and fight acidification. And then the second part of our work is verification of its efficacy. So it's one thing to say we will be capturing carbon. But for the carbon market and for commercializing this product, you need to be able to say exactly how much carbon you're capturing and being able to measure that quantitatively. Mm -hmm. Love this. So, Laura, you know, the listening audience, we have a mix of people. And so some people completely understand this and others are just figuring it out. Mm -hmm. What I like about what you're doing is, you know, the climate crisis is too many greenhouse gases warming the planet, right? Mm-hmm. And the greenhouse gases are trapping too much of that outgoing heat. Mm-hmm. So if we could draw down on carbon dioxide, because as you said, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is a heat-trapping gas, but more than 50% of it is absorbed by the ocean. And for those of you listening, I'm a science teacher, so forgive my geekiness, but carbon dioxide and water make carbonic acid. So what Laura is trying to do is to... Take a, 
stop having the ocean acidify on the pH scale and have it go back up in alkalinity. So a warming ocean kills corals, but an acidic ocean prevents coral from growing back. Mm -hmm. So your project seems to be able or will be able, if it's successful, to do both, draw down carbon and help corals um, reboot, right? Exactly. That's a great explanation. And um, I, I apologize. I do get technical sometimes. No, I um, love it. Go for it. But uh, really, when you think about, I like the Alka-Seltzer analogy because mm -hmm. that is everybody's, you know, day-to-day -day interaction with alkalinity. Um, and we are sort of giving the ocean an antacid. Okay, so but oh, trying I to love picture that. this. That's cool. How will you give it? Okay, yeah. So you're not. Are you really putting it salsa uh, uh, in the water, or are you creating plant aquatic plants mm -hmm. that could suck the carbon dioxide from the water? Explain how your mm -hmm. project hopes to work. So to be clear, my project is simply the research okay. aspect of this. The product that we're testing is being developed by a company based in Canada called Planetary Technologies. Their CEO and founder is a gentleman named Greg Rao, and he has researched this form of carbon capture for decades and has patented a technology to create alkalinity with low carbon emissions. So if the solution is going to you know, put out more carbon emissions, it's not much of a solution. So... I found his research. I'm absolutely convinced that this is how we can capture carbon at a significant scale. And I'm helping to advance that technology by making sure that it's safe and sort of creating a market in Miami for this. But you have me juiced. What is the product? What is the thing? <laughs> exactly. So um, the, the actual product is fresh water mixed with alkalinity. And so essentially... It is a, it's a liquid product. We're not putting solids out into the ocean. And we're hoping to distribute it through outfall systems. So currently, our treated wastewater goes offshore through these long pipes that essentially say the solution to pollution is dilution. Mm -hmm. um, and so we are interested in sort of retrofitting that system um, and adding alkalinity to that system so that it can be distributed. And it's sort of, you know, the rule of averages. If you have an acidic environment and you add a mild base, then they mix and you help bring the pH up. But the difference between alkalinity and a base is that alkalinity also works to prevent that pH from lowering again. So not only does it bring it up, it makes it more tolerant to additions of mm. acid Essentially what it is, is a measure of how much acid you could put into the water before the pH lowering. Mm -hmm. So the more alkalinity, the more acid you can add to the ocean, aka more emissions. So the acid tolerance is higher. Exactly. And so you can bring more emissions from the atmosphere into the ocean without that pH lowering, without mm -hmm. the negative effects of of acidification. So we are not going to be adding corals. We okay. see ourselves as sort of allies to other projects that are doing coral okay. restoration. So for example, there are projects like Reef Restoration, yeah. Reef Educational Environmental Foundation, mm -hmm. all of these different projects that are putting uh, a lot of time and effort into growing corals that are heat tolerant. 
but they're not any more acid tolerant. Mm -hmm. And so unless you put help change the environment that they're being put in, those corals might still die. And so we see ourselves as allies. We help make the environment safer for those corals so that they can thrive and survive rather than putting corals into an environment where they can't yeah, survive. Exactly. But so, so whenever we talk about the climate crisis, we talk about the solutions being two big buckets. Mm-hmm. Adaptation, where we raise roads and we build seawalls and we adapt to the things that are already happening, put more air conditioning to combat heat. That's adapting to climate change. Mm-hmm. Whereas mitigation is going after the causes, preventing more of that carbon from building up in the atmosphere and in the ocean. Mm-hmm. So what I'm not understanding, and I want you to help me understand, is how does the alkalinity you're adding which counteracts ocean acidity, which I love. How does that help with carbon capture? So um, this is where we get into sort of the core science. And one of the challenges that I have with this project is that at the end of the day, it is ocean chemistry. It is straight Mm -hmm. chemistry. Um, And so what we're doing is transforming the state of the carbon from something that is harmful to something that is benign Hmm. or non-harmful, something that can stay in the ocean for hundreds of thousands of years without having a negative effect. So when the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere mixes with water, like you said, it becomes carbonic acid. That's a gaseous state of carbon mixing with water to form an acid. When you add alkalinity to that, that transforms it into a mineral state and it becomes carbonates or bicarbonates. We know bicarbonate as being baking soda, Mm -hmm. and we know that that reacts with acids. So from carbonate and bicarbonate, where corals come in and the biological side of this, corals use that carbonate to absorb into their shells and become calcium carbonate. We know that as limestone. That's our bedrock. So when the corals die, they you know, are at the bottom of the ocean, sediments pile on top of them, that becomes sedimentary rock. And that is what we call the geologic carbon cycle. Most people are familiar with the short-term carbon cycle, but there is a carbon cycle that happens over millions of years. And that's how we sort of go full circle. The ocean brings carbon from the atmosphere into the ocean and then into rocks where it can be stored permanently for longer term. So you're saying carbonic acid is not the end anymore. The alkalinity you're adding Mm -hmm. is going to make sure that that chemistry in the ocean continues beyond carbonic acid to the bicarbonate carbonate phase, Mm -hmm. right? And that's where the carbon is sequestered. Exactly. Because as a chemistry major myself, I do see people understanding that carbonate and bicarbonate contain carbon. Mm-hmm. Carbon dioxide contains carbon. So the idea, we are sequestered carbon. Our bodies were hydrocarbons. So a tree is sequestered carbon. Any living form is sequestered carbon. It's captured in that form. Mm-hmm. So I love what you're telling me, that the, the chemistry of the ocean is going to be altered by the alkalinity you're adding. Since I am not a chemistry major mm-hmm. at all, when you were talking about um like the geocarbon process, is mm-hmm. that what you're referring to with carbon capturing? Like you're mm-hmm. taking, so it wouldn't be like the actual carbon in the ocean, it would be from the geocarbon process? Does that? No, make- it's from the ocean. Okay, it is mm-hmm. from but the, the ocean. But the geologic cycle says 
that the carbon from the ocean goes into organisms, into the skeletons. Oh, so mm-hmm. they, they, the uh, carbon in the ocean forms a crab skeleton, a coral skeleton. Mm-hmm. So the carbonates that we're pushing towards mm-hmm. is a better phase of storing solid carbon. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I I failed chemistry in high school, so this is <laughs> this would be helpful for some other people that did not. No, do we're all, all learning. Yeah. And I think yeah. What I like about this, we want to res- respect some of your priority information. So mm-hmm. alkalines can be used mm-hmm. to combat the acidifying of the oceans and to take the chemical reactions in the oceans beyond carbon dioxide and water equals carbonic acid. We're, de- we're then saying, and with the alkalines we're adding, we are getting that into a carbonate stage, mm-hmm. which organisms use to build who they are and what they oh, are. Oh, so instead of all the carbon going into the ocean and making it worse, it's going to be like we're finding a way to get it to absorb. Okay, mm-hmm. that ma- okay, yeah. that makes sense. So I can definitely do like a quick overview yes. of yeah. the geologic carbon cycle because that's really important to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that carbon is trapped in rocks because that's what we burn And it is actually the largest carbon sink in the world Mm -hmm. because rocks are a solid mass. They can hold physically more carbon than water or gas. And so to get that carbon back into rocks, that's a long process. Rocks form over many, many years. Mm -hmm. And so we've gotten ourselves into a situation where we're very quickly burning and emitting that carbon, but you don't see rocks suddenly forming quicker. Mm -hmm. So um, what we're looking into doing is accelerating the geologic carbon cycle. That is so cool. Mm -hmm. So how that works is we know that rocks, you know, break Mm -hmm. down over time. These rocks contain alkalinity. They contain that mild base. And so when they break down through rivers and streams, go into the ocean, they naturally react with acidic ocean water. Um, and through that process, that reaction, you neutralize the acid. It is transformed into this carbonate and bicarbonate, and it can either be held in the water. It has a residence time of 100,000 years, so we know that minerals dissolve in water just like salt can be held in the water. It can stay there, or then it gets introduced to the biological process through corals, crabs, any sort of Mm -hmm. shelled organism, they bring that into their shells and that's how it becomes rock again and the whole cycle ties together. Wow. This is a great yeah. lesson because, you know, this whole climate crisis, when I, I, I do this all the time, I tell Katrina this, I look at the big picture and I climb into the details and then I pull back out. So mm-hmm. what I'm hearing here is this whole measure of explaining to people that if we have too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere from burning fossil fuels. What we're trying to recognize and what Laura's telling us is it took billions of years to form that oil, coal, and gas, that fossil fuel. Billions of dead organisms over time, right? And what we've done in the last 200 years is la vida loca. We've been burning (laughs) that oil, coal, and gas to live our lives and build our buildings and have our economies the way we want them. But in doing so, we're releasing all of that millions of years of stored carbon, burning it, and releasing carbon dioxide as the product, Mm -hmm. getting the energy we need to do what we want to do. But that product 
of carbon dioxide and methane and other greenhouse gases is what's changing the atmosphere and trapping too much of that outgoing heat. Mm -hmm. So what you're explaining today makes complete sense mm -hmm. to me that the ocean chemistry could be interrupted so that ocean acidity is not something we have to live with, that we mm -hmm. could reverse some of that mm -hmm. by bringing in the alkalinity and allowing organisms to reform and carbon to be sequestered in the rocks and the shells and the skeletons mm -hmm. of living things, correct? Exactly. So, and the earth, you know, it's, it's always going to find its natural balance. It's interesting because we see ocean acidification as a negative thing and the bleaching of corals as a negative thing. Mm -hmm. But it's just the ocean trying to rebalance itself. If we can't take rocks from land and weather them to neutralize that acid, the acid in the ocean is going to try to break down corals mm -hmm. as that source of basic material mm -hmm. to neutralize the acid. So, you know, for us, we can't survive without those coral reefs. But for the ocean, it's just trying to rebalance its chemistry. So we're sort of an outside intervention in this process and we're adding alkalinity to the ocean, you know, uh, we don't see it. We see it as a rebalancing. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been a 30% decrease in alkalinity in the last 200 years since pre-industrial averages. 30%? So 30% decrease. And so we see it as a rebalancing, trying to help make that chemistry, um, you know, back to its baseline. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, we see it as a natural process. You know, a lot of other carbon capture techniques, uh, the most popular has been direct air capture. There is no process that we know of in the natural world that sucks carbon out of the air and stores it permanently underground. Trees would be the most mm -hmm. similar example, but there's no biological component of that plan. And so it's completely artificial. What I like about this solution and what really inspired me to personally get involved with it is you have a natural mechanism. We are using the ocean's power to absorb carbon. Um, it is our friend. It is our ally. It does it on its own. It is thermodynamically favored to capture and store that carbon. But we are using artificial means to accelerate it. And that artificial means is going to require more energy. And, you know, it better be renewable energy mm -hmm. otherwise. Exactly. I just think this is so cool, though, because now that my non-chemist brain has, like, caught up with mm -hmm. your project, you really are taking, like, the problem and turning it into a solution for our oceans, which I just think is, like, so amazing. And also when Caroline were, and I were, like, coming up with the script, we have a lot of, like, questions on here that talk about plants. And this is so different for to what we even thought you were doing. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's, like, so exciting and, like, so incredible. And what's even more empowering, um, and you spoke about this in your speech, is that you're not an expert on this. Like, you just, like, decided to do research. You had an idea, you applied, and you ended up getting a huge sum of money um, via a grant for your idea. And it really shows that you don't have to be an expert in something to tackle a solution. So just for the folks at home that are like, they're probably listening. And I'm sure there's a couple people on here that are like, hey, like I'm inspired by this. Like what can I do to help implement a huge solution? What were your steps to achieve this goal and getting the grant? And I'm so happy to speak on this yeah. because it's really 
for me been such a like journey. I never imagined that I was going to be in the place where I am now. Mm -hmm. um, I was inspired to get involved with this because of the XPRIZE carbon removal competition. Mm -hmm. This is a $100 million grand prize competition funded by Elon Musk to develop carbon capture technology. And I found out about the competition almost a full year ago now. Mm -hmm. And before that, I had no prior experience in um, Who told carbon you about, capture. The about the competition? One of my professors. Okay. So he presented believe. it to the class and almost nobody paid attention. And <laughs> that's, Laura, that's, like, what, me, that's me, what always me. happens. Like, I feel like a professor says something cool and it just like goes over everyone's head and someone's like, wait, this is actually like, why isn't no one paying attention mm -hmm. to this? And funnily enough, on the first day of class, our very first assignment was to look into rock weathering and mm -hmm. this carbonate reaction as a carbon capture solution. Mm -hmm. And so... He gave me the idea, he gave me the opportunity, and I said, well, how can I adapt this to Miami and to Florida? Almost every solution should be focused around ocean and corals and how can we help our local environment? And my original idea was so far from what I'm doing right now, but I wanted to pursue it. And I had the whole summer to do research. I just printed out articles that I found online I mean, I went it online and just started researching. And for people who, who think that, you know, you need prior experience, I got to see in my freshman year of college chemistry. Like, hell yeah. Okay. I love that. <laughs> Let me unpack a few things. First of all, this is proof positive that we need to incentivize solutions mm -hmm. and, and allow entrepreneurs like you and deep thinkers to really see reward for their hard work mm -hmm. and their good ideas, right? Mm -hmm. And I can only encourage all of our listeners to make sure we push our elected officials and our business leaders to incentivize this kind of solution-orientedness, right? Mm -hmm. The second thing I love about this is the no prior knowledge, mm -hmm. that self-education is truly the answer to a lot of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So to all our listeners, read, absorb, ask questions, see yourself as understanding the cause of the problem and how you can go about the solution. So Laura, let me put you on the spot. Mm -hmm. I love the idea of bicycle. I love the idea of putting this alkaline in ocean outfalls in every coastal city, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's a transformative idea, adding alkaline to combat the acidifying ocean. Is it scalable? Absolutely. Does the research tell you that we could afford to make enough of this compound mm -hmm. that you see as a solution mm -hmm. to get it everywhere and prove positive that it's not going to harm ocean ecosystems in the long run? Mm -hmm. Big questions. So um, our solution, one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about it is because it's most effective at scale. I'm not going to lie, at the small scale, it is not the cheapest solution out there. Um, but we are looking at non-competitive renewable inputs for a solution that has a natural storage mechanism. So the inputs here is renewable energy. So there's the assumption that renewable energy is going to become more available and cheaper in the future. Mm -hmm. But that is an assumption for any carbon capture plan. We use uh, mine tailings. So that is the waste that is a result of mining operations. 
like I said, this alkalinity comes from a rock source. And that rock source is a class of rocks called silicates. And that makes 90% of the Earth's crust. So when you dig for ores of precious metals, all of the rock that needs to be removed to get to that What ore, they consider waste is what you want. Exactly. Yes. And so there are billions of tons of this rock. And so it is our belief that based on analysis, um, there is abundant supply to make this a scalable, you know, the competition is aimed at billion ton scale. Uh, the IPPC, IPCC says that we need to remove 10 billion tons of carbon. So that's over 10 billion tons of input material. And based on analysis, there's more than abundant material for that. And we use water, which of course is abundantly available in the I ocean. I don't know about abundantly. I mean, I think we're moving into the water. You're talking about fresh water, right? We are, right now we're looking into fresh water, but the ideal solution uses salt water. Perfect. Now you're mm -hmm. talking. So okay. forgive me if this is a silly question. So when the, if this becomes actually like implemented, like mm -hmm. across every ocean in the world, like mm -hmm. how, how, how would we like put it in the ocean? Would it just be like gallons of water that mm -hmm. we're just like dumping into the ocean? Is that mm -hmm. how it would work? So the... To get to the million ton scale, yeah. we've modeled that you can use outfall systems. Okay. To get to the billion ton scale, we want to use ships. Okay. So there are shipping lanes all across mm -hmm. the world, all across the ocean. And one of the things that we want to develop is a modular form of this technology so that it can be distributed through ships. One of the first industries that we're looking into is the cruising industry. That's just what I was thinking, because it's such a harmful industry and mm -hmm. you're making it less harmful. That's And cool. they're actually going to be helping if we get yeah. them as partners in mm -hmm. this. And, um, wow, you know, <laughs> cruise ships, as much as they've done, they have a long legacy of harm in the ocean. They're one of the most innovative industries mm -hmm. because they have so much pressure and because they have this uh, it's one of the few industries where the customer is really demanding that they change. Um, and cruising, I mean, the technology on these ships are incredible. I spoke to a captain recently, and they no longer dump any contaminants off board the ship. The only thing that they release from the ship is fresh water from their desalination. And that is water that meets uh, drinking water standards. And... Uh, the salt brine that they remove from desalination. So once that's off ship, it mixes together and essentially they take in salt water and they release salt water. Mm -hmm. But since cruise ships serve so many people on board, they have a huge capacity to move water through that ship. Mm -hmm. And so if you can add alkalinity to that, that water that is being released, then you have a mechanism for distributing a lot of this material all over the ocean. I do think that the movement of cruise ships towards being more environmentally friendly um, suffered a great deal of greenwashing, but I do think they're coming to a good place right now and really in, you know, you're trying to do the right thing if they have the right research behind them, like shore power. Mm -hmm. We also see here in your work, Laura, that you're hoping to form these public-private partnerships, right? Between the university, the government, industry. And I think the cruise ship industry, not just because of how they operate, but because of their 
funding capacity, their potential for philanthropy, together with government, mm-hmm. could really move this forward. So tell us about your next steps. How quickly will we know that this is safe and that we need to move forward on scaling it? So our timeline is sort of guided by this competition. The final, the grand prize of the competition is in 2025. And while I am not allowed to spill the news yet, there is very good news coming from this next round of the competition, the Milestone Award, which gives a million dollars to 15 teams out of over a thousand applicants. What we are developing now is a very intense three-year study of safety and effectiveness. Um, Now, the effectiveness part, that is going to be determined by regulators. So we have to speak with the EPA. We have to speak with, you know, all of the regulating bodies in Florida that help protect waters and make sure that we aren't dumping harmful things in the water. That's the thing we've for so many years, we're dumping harmful things in the ocean that then we created very strict regulation to prevent any sort of dumping. And now we have a solution that requires dumping. <laughs> requires dumping. <laughs> and so um, meeting the standards of those regulating bodies is our goal. And so speaking with them, understanding what they need to know to understand that this is safe, what measurements need to be taken, all of that is going to be taken into account for our research plan. Um, How big is your team, Laura? Right now, we have a fairly small team of students. Mm -hmm. We have uh, five students and one professor from the University of Miami. Uh, But that is just for a team basico. Mm -hmm. We are partnered with Planetary Tech, which is a team of 18 professionals. um, And they have two sister projects, one with Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada, and another one in Hale, UK. So each of these projects has a specific a specialty. Mm-hmm. So the UK project specializes in outfall infrastructure. The Halifax project specializes in uh, sort of measurement technologies, uh, how we measure that the carbon is being captured. And our project is specializing in corals and ecological safety. Mm-hmm. And Love so the, the project is really expanding. And what we're so excited about the opportunity through XPRIZE is that's a very public platform. And um, we think that there are a lot of great partnerships coming our way in the next three years to expand this project and accelerate it. Um, and part of that is funding, you know. So your first funding was 100000 mm-hmm. The next one could be a million. Mm-hmm. Oh and then goodness. after that? After that, we are hoping for this three-year project plan to raise about one to two million dollars. Wow. Um. Okay, how can we help you? Because look at me, you are you are speaking to two people here who have tremendous belief in the youth idea, initiative, entrepreneurial, and you, you're doing what we talk about doing, mm-hmm. and you're doing it. How can we help you? What doors could we have opened for you? We're very connected, not just locally and regionally and throughout the state, but, you know, beyond that. How can I help? How can we help? Funding is the big motivator. I mean, uh, like you said, the incentive for me was this competition. And while it is, you know, a lot of money for the kind of technology that we are building, it's a huge, it's a very expensive industry. And so... Do uh, the cities and the counties know about this work? 
I have spoken with uh, Mayor Francis Suarez. Okay. He's a supporter of the project. Um, he pledged $25,000 to the project. Um, and I actually spoke with uh, the resilience uh, coordinator in Daniela Levine Cava's office. Jim Galen. Murley? Oh, Galen. Yeah. Well, I did speak with Jim Murley and Galen Truer. Mm-hmm. Um, He's a UM grad, so he should be right on your corner, right? Exactly. Yeah. And they're both, you know, everyone I, I speak to is thrilled about the project and they really want to support it. But it's sort of uh, the chicken and the egg. You know, we need funding in order to prove the project and build the team. Yeah. But in order to get that funding, they want to see that you have a team and that you have made progress. Really just connecting with these industry and government leaders and, you know, bringing all of their interests together. My hope is to start a research center around this where we can have sort of a board of advisors that are representing the interests of government, industry, academics, the community. And so we have all of these opinions and all of these interests gathered in one place so that we're not, so that we're being proactive with the solution. I think that since it's such an early stage of technology, carbon capture hasn't been extensively developed. We are really on the forefront of this technological development. We can mold it to be the best thing that it can be. We want to take into account the voice of the community that has been often left out of the conversation. And we want to make sure that we're serving them proactively. We want to talk to regulators first before starting the experiment so that we know that we're not conducting science that isn't going to meet our end goal of capturing carbon and launching this solution. We want to talk to scientists to make sure that the science that we're doing is sound, it's safe. We don't want to run any risks of cutting corners or overlooking the ecological safety because that is first and foremost. And we want to make sure that the academic interests are served, that we are building this area of knowledge that has never before been looked into. I mean, we know the effects of carbon in the atmosphere and in the ocean, but we have no idea what happens once we start taking it out. And Laura, it sounds to me like you're in a perfect spot and you have the university behind you. I know you have a, a you have a lot of support at the university, correct? Yes. Um, we have Are you getting funding from the university? No. So, uh, we have not been officially recognized by the university. I have support from a professor who is my mentor. His name is Dr. Chris Langdon. And we we love Dr. Chris Langdon. He has been so supportive and he has helped so many student projects. I mean, he really has given me so much to work with. Well, it sounds to me like you definitely need to have an audience with the cruise ship CEOs Mm -hmm. and and really pitch this for them and get them to be partners. Mm -hmm. Which is why I think it's so important that you actually apply for the Youth Climate Council that Miami-Dade County is creating. I think you would be like a perfect person to be a part of it, Mm -hmm. especially since you'll be able to like kind of be near the Climate Resilience um, Committee. Yeah, the Climate Resilience Team for Miami-Dade County. And you would, I don't know, I just think that would be so helpful for you to be on the council and the mayor is currently working on creating it would you apply for it? Like, we would love to support you do that. Absolutely. And sort of what you guys are touching on is this uh, partnership between the youth and leadership and the older generations. Mm -hmm. I'm really proud of the youth movement and what we've done, but we can't 
we have to be empowered to to pursue these solutions. I've, you know, I started this as an individual research project. I just intended to get three credit hours out of this. And now it's launched into something so much bigger than me. And so having some mentorship in community organizing, getting the team together, getting, you know, delegating tasks and, um, you know, bringing all of this, this organization to the next level where it's really something that runs just beyond me. I mean, well, Cleo's really good at community organizing. (laughs) We we definitely want to partner with you at some level. We want to share the story and help build the momentum. We have an Instagram, a Twitter page, all the social media platforms. We're working on getting a TikTok uh, account started and, you know, just like showing your support. We'll we'll try and share those. Yeah, share your Instagram handles right now. Absolutely. Uh, so on Instagram, we are basi.co2, basico. Oh, that's cute. I like that. <laughs> and on Twitter, the same, basi.co2. And thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank and you. this is just the beginning of that. Yes, Laura, you're, you're a force to be reckoned with and, and type of person we want to hang with. So thank you for caring. Thank you for showing the youth that they can do this and that you know you have support from people who are just a little bit older than what we qualify as youth. Thanks so much, Laura. Thank you. Thank you both. During the episode, Laura had mentioned that her team was waiting on news from the next round of the grant. We are pleased to announce that Planetary Tech, the inventors of the carbon capture technology, has won the Million Dollar Milestone Award for a proposal they submitted with Project Basico. Planetary Tech has recruited Basico to conduct research to support their solution and help implement it in Miami. Project Basica will receive a portion of these funds for their research. House on Fire is powered by the Clio Institute and could not exist without the help of the Lynn and Lewis Wolfson II Family Foundation. Thank you so much for making this happen. Here at the Clio Institute, we believe that the best way to get people into the climate movement is through education. And one of the best ways to do that is by sharing House on Fire with your friends and family. So don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. And House on Fire can be found on all channels where podcasts are available. Thank you.